some of the most important news doesn't make big, splashy headlines. That's because these developments unfold slowly or are super wonky or simply don't make it to publication in a busy news cycle. This is certainly true in the world of climate and energy politics and policy. In this new monthly series from Political Climate, we're calling Newsflash. We'll shed light on stories you may have missed or that needed a double click, all in about 15 minutes, giving you critical information coupled with details you won't get anywhere else. We'll draw on the latest reporting from Canary Media to bring you the story behind the story, sharing information that got left on the cutting room floor. I'm your host, Julia Piper. In our first Political Climate News Flash episode, we'll look at the once-in-a-lifetime work underway at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The article we're discussing was reported by none other than Maria Virginia Alano, editorial and research associate at Canary Media and producer of the Political Climate Podcast, who will be my co-host for the News Flash series. Hey, Maria Virginia, how are you? Hi, Julia. I'm doing great. I'm super excited for this new series, and thank you for having me on. Of course. I mean, you have a background in podcasting. You had your own podcast before, and now you're at Canary Media. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what that editorial process is like and why, you know, we decided to launch this series. What are the little nuggets that you see get left behind in stories that you hope we cover here today? Absolutely. So there's a lot that gets lost or changed during the editorial process, right? Our reporters go through so many interviews and data gathering, and then the stories that you see end up being great and polished, but there's so much behind the story. And so that's what I'm really excited about to explore here. For this particular article, we had been discussing on the podcast the bipartisan infrastructure law and talking about how that was big in the news for like a second, and then it dropped off, right? Because we have so many other priorities and so much going on. Uh, But now is the time where those dollars are actually being spent and deployed. So that's what I was really interested in getting at and really finding someone who has access to these dollars and is using it for programs on the ground to see how that's being spent and what kind of impact it's going to have. Awesome. Well, before we get into that, we'd love our listeners to take a moment to review Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you are listening. We're also on canarymedia.com, so make sure you subscribe to their newsletter and catch all the new episodes. When you subscribe and when you leave a comment, it really helps us grow and the show flourish. We also get to hear what's on your minds. We want to hear what you want us to cover. What are the stories in the news that may have been missed that we can delve into here on this new News Flash series? So, For this episode, I want to talk about the conversation you recently had, Maria Virginia, with Lisa Garcia, administrator for the EPA's Region 2, who talked about why this is such a pivotal time at the agency. Set the scene here for that conversation. So as you noted, Lisa Garcia was appointed by President Biden last year to serve as regional administrator for EPA's Region 2. Uh, She's actually not new to the agency at all. She served under President Obama. Uh, She was appointed in 2009, and she served as associate administrator and advisor in the agency. I personally knew of Lisa from her work at Grist, where she was the director of Grist Solutions Lab called FIX. And that's a program that really focuses on amplifying the voices of climate justice leaders. So when I saw that Lisa had made the jump back to the EPA, I was really excited to talk to her and kind of learn what she's excited about and what she's working on right now. So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was passed by Congress last fall and signed into law by President Biden on November 15th, 2021. And we've covered this bill on the podcast before, but sort of at a high level. And we certainly haven't delved into the EPA side of things. So walk us through how funding from that bill is being deployed by the EPA. 
Yeah, so that law actually delivers more than $50 billion to the EPA to improve the nation's drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater infrastructure, uh, which is really huge, and it's really unprecedented. Um, it actually represents the single largest investment in water infrastructure the federal government has ever made. Uh, so it's very historic, and it definitely has implications for our lives and livelihoods, because water is very much connected to public health. Um, Garcia actually called this a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do some things like improve water infrastructure, replace lead service lines, and reduce the lead impacts on low-income communities, as well as focusing on contaminants in drinking water, uh, which we can get into a little bit later. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. She literally called it, quote, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which for someone who's worked at the EPA for many years, it's clearly saying something about the moment that we're in. So what are some of the ways that the EPA is putting this historic $50 billion-plus into water investment? Yeah, so it's definitely a big deal. Um, and the funding for water is basically divided into three big buckets. The first is safe drinking water. The second is clean water for communities. And the third is protected regional waters. On that first bucket, I was actually shocked to learn that there are still six to 10 million lead service lines in cities and towns across the country, which is staggering. And we know that the impacts of lead are catastrophic for our health and, and well-being. So many of these lead lines are still in communities of color and low-income neighborhoods. There's also other contaminants that are found in drinking water, like, let's see if I can pronounce this, polyfluoroalkaline substances, or PFAS. These are long-lasting synthetic or man-made chemicals that break down really, really slowly. So they basically stick around in water, air, soil, and even some of the animals that we then consume for food. And there's a lot that we still don't know about the impacts on our health, but the EPA is also spending money not only to clean up water, but also to do more research to understand how that impacts people. If you have never seen the movie Dark Waters, I very much recommend it. It was made by Mark Ruffalo, and it's a movie that follows the history of a lawyer that basically gets into the Teflon issue in particular, which is a type of PFOA. And it's shocking. It's definitely not a light watch, but it's pretty amazing and, and you learn a lot. I switched out all my pans, got rid of Teflon to my husband's dismay, but there are <laughs> great alternatives out there for this reason. Yeah, absolutely. But what's shocking is to know just how ubiquitous they are now, right? These chemicals are pretty much everywhere and they've been found in blood and in the air and in the soil, and it's going to take a while to clean them up. So it's definitely a big issue. But the other two buckets of funding that we kind of touched on is clean water for communities that cleans up bodies of water so that they can be used for recreation and fishing. And regional water focuses on protection of larger bodies of water. So for example, the Great Lakes or Bay Areas that can be preserved for recreation and then also economic resources. So this is historic. We are starting to come to understand that. But I also understand that there's great responsibility that comes with this new big charge for the EPA. And so here's how Garcia described it in your interview. The big picture is it's definitely once in a lifetime, once in a generation opportunity, like just this infusion of funding focused on infrastructure. Um, and so the way that EPA is seeing it is $60 billion over the next five years is such a wonderful opportunity. And so we really need to be thoughtful and make sure that we're overlaying the funding with our priorities. And so this is why I say it's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity, not only because of the funding stream, but also because this real effort to say this time really Let's try to get to these legacy issues that I was talking about before. 
So she talked there about legacy issues. Maria Virginia, what are some of those legacy issues? During our interview, Garcia referenced environmental justice a lot as it being at the center of the agencies and her own work. And that's especially true when it comes to deploying this funding. Uh, we know that a lot of the environmental harm that we see today, in particular, how disproportionately it impacts people of color, low-income people, indigenous and rural communities, is a direct result of some of the policies, regulation and financing structures of the past. One of the most glaring examples that's often referenced is redlining and sawning laws uh, that concentrated industrial and polluting facilities, as well as highways nearby or even tearing through black and brown communities. So when she talks about these legacy issues, this is what she means. The concentration of pollution and polluted sites in certain communities, which certainly did not happen by accident or by chance. So I think there's this impetus of correcting for that harm, and that starts with investment, investing into the places that have been systemically underinvested in, because that's where the infrastructure is most needed. That requires listening to and including the people who have been on the receiving end of environmental harm for decades in how those solutions are designed and actually carried out. This is something actually that EPA Administrator Michael Regan, the first black man to ever lead the agency, has prioritized. Last fall, he embarked on what he called the journey to justice. It was a tour across the country he took to spotlight longstanding environmental justice concerns. And he had this experience inform the EPA's work. They're doing now things like more focus on air quality monitoring or stepping up unannounced inspections of buildings that are believed to be out of compliance with public safety codes. So it does seem as though there's been sort of a, a shift at the EPA to look at not only environmental harm, but then the real focus on humans and how this affects people and affects them disproportionately. So what are some of the ways that Lisa said that she is prioritizing this in her role? I thought this was really interesting to hear because she was talking about inclusion and accessibility from the perspective of her own team and her role as a manager within the EPA. Honestly, when I was asking these questions, I was trying to get at the ways that the outward work focuses on justice and equity. But Garcia spent some time talking to me about how she's improving her hiring and retention practices. And that makes a ton of sense, right? If you're prioritizing these things in your work, then you also should be prioritizing it in how that work gets done. Um, I think there's a big lesson there to that more organizations need to be learning as well, how to acquire talent, but then also have an environment of inclusion and accessibility within teams. You also talked to Lisa Garcia about the EPA's plans to announce a new clean school bus rebate program for applicants to replace existing outdated old school buses with low or zero emission school buses. What's unique about that program? Yeah, I'm actually really excited about that. And I think it's one of those programs that really is a no-brainer and everyone can get behind. Uh, so the bipartisan infrastructure law funds $5 billion over five years for investments for low and zero emissions school buses. Just last week, on May 20th, it was announced that the first $500 million of that bucket of funding is now available. Uh, so the funding basically aims to replace school bus fleets with electric school buses that are also American-made. Uh, so it's really a triple win for public health, climate, as well as domestic jobs. I think there's no better selling point than protecting the health of our children who currently drive to school in these highly polluting machines. Uh, so this is a great solution and, and it's gonna be really exciting. That's awesome. So in addition to these specific programs, EPA is also investing in capacity building. 
For instance, in the bipartisan infrastructure law, it includes $50 million for technical assistance to help communities become more competitive for EPA grants to then clean up their water and their surrounding environment. I know the EPA also announced $3.8 million in grants to train environmental workers for jobs created with funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law. So what did Garcia have to say about that program and sort of building in more capacity for communities to take advantage of the opportunities that are now available? So this is another one of those programs that has the potential to deliver multiple benefits to communities. In Region 2 specifically, which is what Garcia was talking to me about, there are more than 1,600 brownfields. And brownfields are basically polluted or contaminated sites that have been deemed hazardous, so they can't really be developed or used. Uh, so cleaning up these sites presents additional opportunities for communities in and around them, not just for the obvious reasons that you don't want hazardous material around you, but also becomes land that then can be used for other things. The funding specifically is to offer job training for local residents who are unemployed in communities historically affected by this kind of pollution. And it's offered through grants for institutions and universities where participants can be able to gain the technical skills that are necessary to clean up these brownfields. Uh, something that I learned in our interview that was pretty amazing is that they have found from previous programs like this that 70% of graduates have been placed in full-time jobs, such as environmental field technicians, construction positions, and administrative roles. I love that. It's like, it's not a one and done program. You're not in and out, dropped off some school buses, see you later. They're thinking through how do we actually create skills in a community that are replicable and usable for hopefully years and, and decades to come and have it be a little more lasting. Exactly. So again, we're looking at this once in a lifetime opportunity as Lisa Garcia called it, but it's not expected to be entirely smooth sailing. So what are some of the challenges the EPA faces in deploying these funds? So this is an area that I was very curious to hear more about because up until now, this all sounds great, right? There's funding, there's opportunities, there's this, all these programs that want to be invested in. So I wanted to understand where were the challenges or the sticking points. And it turns out that some of those challenges are tied to the underinvestment that we were talking about just before. Because the scale of funding is so unprecedented and new, there's a lot of catching up to do. In particular, she called out the struggle to hire local technical experts to actually carry out and do this work. She referenced Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands specifically as places where there is funding and there are huge needs, but it's been really hard to find and hire people to get this work going. They also want, because of the priorities that we covered already, to ensure that local people are hired and that the benefits stay within the local economy. But that has definitely been a challenge. And there have been claims that the EPA is actually severely underfunded itself. There was an opinion piece I saw on The Hill last month entitled Congress Needs to Support EPA's Environmental Protection Infrastructure, and it was authored by former EPA attorney David Corson. And he made the argument that Congress missed the boat on an omnibus EPA appropriation, basically giving the agency more money. And he said this is an issue that will undermine the agency's work. So last year, the funding for the EPA was about half in real dollars what the agency received 40 years ago, he said. And it has the smallest staff now since 1987, especially following the Trump administration's efforts to shrink the agency. Putting aside any debates around the merits of that, it seems now, as this new influx of funding comes in, that the lack of funding and employees at the EPA itself can present challenges for the actual deployment, as well as meeting the country's overall environmental goals. Does that align with what you're hearing? Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about this moment of unprecedented 
funding and work, and there's so much to do on all fronts, right? Water, air, climate, and we're coming up at an agency that has been underfunded and also has had some challenges, as you were alluding to. Um, so in our conversation, some of the internal priorities of the agency, Garcia also talked about how it's critical to her that the EPA continues to center science in all of its actions. And I think that rings a bell for people who had been following what happened at the agency throughout the previous administration. Right. So I remember early on there were news stories about web pages on climate change being removed from the EPA's website. As reported by the New York Times, then administrator Scott Pruitt also, quote, fired and barred independent scientific advisors who had received grants from the EPA, a policy that a court ultimately found to be illegal, and then replaced them, Scott Pruitt did, with many industry representatives and rolled back scientifically supported policies, end quote. Yeah. And while she was reluctant to directly reference the Trump administration, I think it's safe to say that that's what she was alluding to. And we can see Michael Regan also making claims of, you know, bringing science back into the agency. So that's resonant of some of those things that happened and the EPA decisions that may have been warped by political interference. Um, so here's how Lisa Garcia explained to me the significance of centering science in the agency's work. APA is a regulatory agency, really at its heart. And so for us to be able to say, what are the most protective solutions to climate events or to sea level rise or to flooding, that we really need to bring in not only the technical expertise, but the science, like, you know, how does the water flow or what's the hypoxia of water or where is, you know, how do emissions flow if I want to reduce um clean air. We need the innovators to build the pollution control equipment, but we also need to understand what the public health impacts are from those emissions. And that's where the science becomes that kind of foundation of almost like why we're doing this work. Like, why are we concerned about PFAS in drinking water or lead in drinking water? Well, it was science that made us pay attention to it. And so that's what we want to get back to. Well, Maria Virginia, thank you for breaking down these major developments at the EPA, an agency that admittedly I do not pay enough attention to, but does incredible work all across the country. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. I look forward to returning next month with another behind the scenes look at the policy stories that we've been covering and reporting at Canary Media. I can't wait. For now, this wraps our first episode of Political Climate's News Flash series. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Let us know what you thought by leaving that comment wherever it is that you like to listen to the podcast. And if you haven't yet, make sure to hit subscribe. I'm Julia Piper, joined by Maria Virginia Alano and also Kyle McDonald, our wonderful editor. That's it for now. See you soon. <laughs>